So sure enough, the presentation was going great. And one of the executives in marketing raised up his hand, called out my name. Richard, I have a question. I thought, oh, man. And he said, it's a simple one. And he said, this is all great, but how much market share are we talking about? That's Richard Montañez, former vice president of PepsiCo, best-selling author, and the inspiration behind the film Flamin' Hot, which showcases the inspiring story of how he rose from Frito-Lay janitor to vice president by channeling his Mexican-American heritage and upbringing to turn the iconic Flamin' Hot Cheetos into a snack that disrupted the food industry and became a global pop culture phenomenon. So I said market share. And I remember the gondolas, the racks, how long they are. Could be 24 feet, 52 feet. With the most ridiculous smile, I stretched out my arms and I said, this much market share. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Richard Montañez to discuss why hunger is the antidote to fear, why opportunities are created, not given, and how to take charge of your own destiny. I've always teach that sometimes in order to find your future, you gotta revisit your past. Good or bad, there's nothing wrong with your past. Your past is a pillar to help sustain your future. I don't care how bad it was, I don't care how good it is, it's just your path, it is a pillar. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. All right, Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. So you and I were just talking that you just came off the Crisp Game Changer Summit. You brought down the house, one of the most probably popular and highest rated speakers that we had at that summit. So obviously there was a lot of people who, this being a private event, were not at the event. So this is an incredible opportunity for them to hear from you on this podcast and I wanted to spend some time just going through your book. It's a phenomenal book. Also, I know recently the movie came out too. I want to ask you about that, of course, just to get things started. If we could go back to your childhood, and I know in the book you talk about growing up in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood in South Ontario, California. Can you paint a picture of what that experience was like for you? I look back and think it was a wonderful time to grow up. Even though I had some hardship, I didn't really know they were hardship until I became an adult. But the place where I grew up was a small labor camp. Everyone there picked grapes. The guy that uh, owned the field was a good man. A lot of times when you hear about people that pick grapes, you think slavery or something. For us, we were fortunate because it was different because the man's name was Segundo Guasti. And he built a community. He built a school for us. He built housing. He built a grocery store. So it was like a little community. We were able to work there the whole year. You know, so my grandpa and my dad worked there for, as a matter of fact, my grandfather retired from that industry. Probably the story that's never been told. 
Because, you know, right away when you think of farm laborers, you think of evil men and things. Well, this guy wasn't like that. So, you know, he's got to be separated from that. So it was a pretty cool time to grow up. We were poor, but we really didn't know we were poor. Mom always had something on the table and, you know, dad was always working on something. So I really enjoyed my time as a child in that, you know, and then I look back and I know that it's made me who I am today. Without tough times, you ain't going to be tough. You know, that's the only way I can say it. And even throughout the book, I know you talk about a lot of these experiences that you had, it wasn't even so much life happening to you, but as you reflected, it happening for you and the lessons that you took away from that and that helped to shape you and to develop you into who you are today. I know in the book you talk about that, I think at the time in school, every Tuesday, you felt the pang of injustice when they were telling you that this is your line, get in it. But I'd love for you to just elaborate on that story and more importantly, talk about the lesson that you took away from that experience. Well, yeah, you know, that was during desegregation. I'm a child of desegregation where they were mixing the schools from different cultures and stuff like that. So, you know, I was going to a, pretty much a bilingual school. All the teachers spoke Spanish. So my uh, first language was Spanish. So I had a difficult time speaking English. So every Tuesday, the community, I don't know if it was a state law or whatever, but every Tuesday they would bring in two trailers for after-school reading program. And one trailer was for those who spoke Spanish. And the other trailer was those for spoke English. And every Tuesday, I hear where the story begins. Every Tuesday, I was told to get into that line. They didn't ask me which line you wanted to get in. They just said, that's your line. You get over there. And then one Tuesday, I did something that I've been doing my whole life is I broke ranks. And I got out of that line and I got into the white line. Now, you have to remember, this is the 60s. It's a little bit more dangerous. There's going to be a beating. What do I mean by that? Well, my teachers are going to beat me for getting out of my line. The teachers on the other side are going to beat me for getting into their line. Either way, there's going to be a beating. Now, people think today that's terrible, but that's what it was in the 60s. You know, you could spank anybody you wanted to. But I broke ranks. I got in that line, and I looked inside. I'll never forget. I saw two beautiful blondes with blue eyes. I got in line, and I thought, can they tell I'm not white? I'm dark. You know, I got this big old mustache, and I've had this mustache since I was 10 years old, so there's nothing I can do about it. But I was scared, and my friends were calling me back in Spanish, hey, if Ricardo, estás loco, you're in the wrong line. I looked inside and I told him what I saw. And what I saw was cookies. They had cookies in there. I remember I'm eight years old. I told them, I'm going to get us some cookies. So I got closer and closer. I really had a fear. You don't do stuff like that in the 60s. I had this fear. What are they going to do? What are those white ladies going to do? Well, I made it to the top. And to my amazement, those white ladies, those blondes, they filled my pockets with cookies. That's why today when my wife catches me looking at blondes, I would say, hey, they gave me cookies when I was little. But the moral of that story is there's a cookie that's been baked for each one of us. Our job is to get out of that line they told us to get into and get into the cookie line. I always say this, how dare anyone try to tell our children which line to get into? If they're in the job line and they want to get into the career line, Get in that line. It's your choice. They want to be lawyers? Get in that line. Don't let anybody pick your line. And that's what I learned as a young man. Is I was given a line of poverty, and I decided to get into the line of prosperity. And I had to learn how to live in prosperity because, listen to this, this is crazy, but this is true, and this is kind of offensive to some people. When you live in poverty, you are taught how to live in poverty. You are taught how to survive poverty which is totally wrong. You should never survive poverty. You should escape it. 
And that's what I did. I began to escape it. And what do I mean by surviving poverty? My mom and my dad taught me how to survive poverty. They said, Richard, look over there. They have food stamps over there. Richard, look over there. That's the welfare office. Look, if you need housing, you go over there. No one ever said, Richard, there's the line to be a lawyer over there. That's a law office over there. That's a doctor's office over there. So that's why I always say you have to escape poverty. You never want to survive it. And the last part of the moral of that story, because remember, it's two parts. There's a cookie being baked for everyone. The second part is this. Why did I break rank? Why did I risk a beating as scared as I was? Well, there was something greater than that fear. And what was that? It was hunger. I was hungry. You see, I believe that hunger is the antidote to fear. When you're hungry for that position, fear will leave. When you're hungry to open that business, fear will leave. When you're hungry to live in that neighborhood, fear will leave. Hunger is the antidote to fear. So I knew as a young man that I was hungry for more. Maybe the lines that they were saying were my choices were incorrect, but it's ridiculous, Richard. You have no education. You have this. It didn't matter. It's amazing. I don't have a high school diploma. I don't even have a GED. But I'm a featured speaker at Harvard, Notre Dame, USC, UCLA, Pepperdine, some of the top schools. I mean, you name it, I've been there. It isn't that I have a formal education. It's that my education comes in an informal way. I spent a lot of time with successful people. I spent a lot of time with uncles, aunts. There's so much wisdom. And the older generation, it's amazing. And, you know, you get a hold of those things. It's a whole lot better. One of the greatest things you can have is wisdom. And actually, along those lines, I wanted to ask you, I know in the book you talk about that very early on in your life. I think you were 12 years old when you realized that if you're going to be in charge of your own destiny and not let the world define you, that the time would come for you to drop out of school and work full time. I'm just curious how you came to that realization at 12 years old. And just looking back now, if you believe that was the right decision. That's probably my most painful decision was quitting school. And the reason I say that, because it was a different time. I don't know what it had been like today, but at that time, because of my color, because of my background, there was another discrimination that I faced. And now the discrimination of pedigree. Where are you from? Or you're from the other side of the tracks. It was a little different. It didn't matter what color you were. If you were from the other side of the track, you could be white, you could be yellow. It didn't matter. You were from the other side of the track. So you got treated completely different. And as a young man, you know, I saw that every time I went to school, I was still being told which line to get into. I remember the teachers telling my mom they were going to put me in a special class because I was so far behind. But it wasn't that I was so far behind. It's that, remember, what's my first language? It's Spanish. There was no bilingual classes. There was no bilingual, any of that. I had to know English. So that was kind of a setback. So I realized that, okay, wait a minute. I see my dad. My dad had a third grade education. And I see my grandfather had zero. And I saw these two men with such an intelligence that it was unbelievable. They could build you a house. They could build you a hot rod. They were engineers. And I realized I had that same kind of a mindset. And it finally dawned on me that this is what I like to tell young people too, that it's not about how smart you are. I've never said I'm the smartest person in the room. It's not about how smart you are. It's about how are you smart? That's the difference. You may be smart as two plus two is four. I may be smart as two plus two can be five. There's a difference there. 
there's been tests done. Every child born is actually born brilliant as a genius. Over time, they're told because of certain test scores, this is their level of intelligence. And sometimes I think that those type of educational systems trouble our youth because they don't know how to define someone's true intelligence because the test has been developed by their skills. And you've heard the story. If I'm a fish, why are you giving me a test of a bird? If I'm a bird, why are you testing me as a fish? And teachers are beginning to find that out. But in my days, it was strictly white and black. You go by the book. Well, you know what? You tested terrible here. Even today, when I wrote my first book, this is crazy. When I wrote my first book, A Boy, A Burrito, and a Cookie, I did that in like six Saturdays. I just took a Saturday off and I just got in front of the computer and began typing. And I actually did it for my family. I wanted them to know the history of their grandpa. It got published and people started buying it. And the English experts got a hold of it and just ripped it apart and said, how did this ever get published? This guy can't spell. This guy doesn't know his grammar. My response was, I'm not trying to win a spelling bee. I'm trying to win in life. But here's the crazy thing about it is they were offended. You know why? Because they didn't fit their test scores. But here's the crazy thing is Hollywood got a hold of it and created a bidding war for the rights to it. So that's why I've always said, I'm not trying to influence everyone, only the right ones. Because when it's the right ones, they get who you are and you get who they are. So that book made it to Hollywood and started the bidding war. I've met with every movie company, MGM, Paramount, you name it, we met with them. They wanted it. And again, that goes back to my point. It's not about how smart you are. It's about how are you smart? We have to release people to be their type of smart versus my type of smart. So. And I've used that my entire career. Like I said, the main thing is two plus two is four. And I come in and say, I think I can make it five. I would love to have an employee like that. Like, I think I can add one more to that. But it's impossible. Well, let me have that number and I'll show you. And it seems like throughout your career, you've had your share of skeptics and non-believers and critics. But the women in your life, particularly your mother and Judy, they seem to have believed in you from the very beginning. I think Judy in particular, I'm just curious, you guys have been together forever before you had anything. What do you believe that she saw in you and how would you describe your relationship? Well, I think what she saw in me is what I saw in her is just two people that needed each other. The part that I'll talk about about my life is that the hard part, growing up in a gang infested, drug infested, all my relatives were alcoholics or drug addicts. So it was the destiny you were gonna be given. Judy comes from a broken home. Her mom was an alcoholic, divorced, single. So she never had anything new. She has always had leftovers, kind of like myself. So when we found each other, we were kind of like from the same place. We just kind of decided to back each other up, no matter what. And she followed through with that. I fell in love with her as soon as I saw her. There's no question about it. She's tough. I'm tough. She needed somebody who was like me. I needed somebody that was like her. And together, we kind of grew up and kind of found life together. Again, she didn't have those mentors to teach her how to be a woman, how to be a mom. I didn't have those mentors how to be a businessman. My dad and my grandpa, only thing they taught me was how to work hard. But they didn't have no bank accounts. They didn't know how to write checks. I didn't know how to write a check. So that type of thing was just in a different world, different dimension. So, you know, we got together and... We had my first son at such a young age, 
And this is a crazy thing. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but you can see it in the movie. I remember the movie can't show 20 years of life in an hour. But as a child, I was a ward of the court. What does that mean? That means that my mom and dad didn't own me anymore, that I was owned by the juvenile system. And a reason, because I got into trouble and I wouldn't go to school and things like that. And there was even an article, which is kind of crazy. It says that I said I quit school in the sixth grade and they found some history where I'm registered in a high school. So it's kind of funny because you say you didn't go to school, then they call you a liar and say you did go to school. And you say you went to college and they'll come back and say, you're a liar, you didn't go to college. But I never wanted to get into that because I didn't want to tell the story. See, in those days, when you're a ward of the court, I was on probation. So I was always in jail. I was always in the juvenile system. And they don't like to talk about that. So I was always in the juvenile system. So I had a probation officer till I was 19 years old. And your probation officer was also your truant officer. So every time I got out of juvenile hall, and I would do six months straight, things like that at a camp or whatever, and he would pick me up and take me to school. That was their job. He'd side me up. Well, I got out, and at a ninth grade, he took me to high school. And he signed me up, and he left. I went home, and I never went back. And he called me up, because the school called him up a month later. Hey, Richard hasn't been there. So he called me and says, you need to get over there. If you're not there... You're going back to juvenile hall. So, of course, I went back, and when I got there, the cops were waiting for me. It was all a, a setup to get me back. So what happens? Well, I go back to juvenile hall. So anyways, that's why I am registered in the school system, because I was forced, not because I was attending class. I don't really like talking about that story. But anyways, I get out again, and me and Judy have been dating on and off. And the reason on and off, because I was always behind bars. So the last time I got out, I was like 17 years old, and that's when we really kind of said we're going to stay together, and she got pregnant. I was facing 16 charges, 16 charges as a 17-year-old. And we went to go see the judge, and I told the judge, hey, this is Judy. We're going to get married. I had found a job, minimum wage, and I said, I'm going to make it. I'm done. My first miracle, the judge looked at me, and he knew me by name because I was always in his court. And he said, Richard, that's all I ever wanted for you, was for you to grow up. And he says, case dismissed. I walked out of there a free man, realizing like, man, I just got the opportunity of a lifetime. And that judge had always been yelling at me. I'm sick and tired of seeing you here. And I always thought he hated me, but he didn't. He was just tired of, come on, grow up. So that kind of started my change with me and Judy. And Judy matured a whole lot faster because she became a mom. But it took me still a couple more years. Because remember, when you're from the other side of the tracks, it takes a while to understand how other people live. I thought everybody did this. What I was doing, some of the illegal things I was doing, it wasn't that I thought I was a terrible person. I said this, there are no bad kids. Only kids in bad environments. My environment was like this, so I thought, well, everybody lives like this. I didn't know until I started to hang out with different people and got my first job. and So, you know, Judy was always that strong woman. And of course, I had my mom and my grandma. My grandma, I've always said, was the most caring person I ever knew. I never heard her raise her voice, always protected me. Even when I got into trouble, she would find out that I was in jail and she would hug me. And 
And I hated that because she would start crying like, oh, what are you doing? I'm so worried about you. And I was like, oh my God, that's the sweetest women. I'm making her cry. But then my mom was a tough woman. My mom had several jobs where she had 10 kids, she had several jobs, cleaned hotel rooms. She worked at a citrus fruit packing house. And so she did whatever she had to do to keep us alive. And then Judy was going the same thing. She was going from apartment to apartment, sometimes living in a motel, things like that. And then her and I, we just got together as young kids. We just decided, it's you and I, it's nobody else. We're going to make this. I never realized she was such an encourager and she was such a deep lady, a leader, as a matter of fact. She was my drill sergeant. You started telling me, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Actually, she probably teached me how to be a man more than the men in my life. Because she said, you got to find a job. You got to do this. You can't go with your friends no more. You can't act like that. She's in some way protected me because, again, you don't have heard me say this. I'm from the hood. I learned my leadership on the street. So I must have had 500 street fights. I felt my best when I was exchanging rounds and stuff like that. When we started to get a little bit more sophisticated, I would tell people, hey, don't let this, because I'm in a tie spot every day. I'd tell people, don't let this tie fool you. I could take it off and we can go outside and talk about it. And Judy would say, hey, we're not like that no more. And I'd say, hey, oh, well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. So she was kind of like, had the key to wind me up or bring me down. And because she stayed with me, I trusted her. And I loved the fact that I had a woman that I could trust. And I had a woman who had my back. It's too hard to explain. I know you know that because you have the same thing. You just know that no matter what happens, you can go to your wife. And it happened as my career started. So there was so many times that I'd go home and I'd cry to her. Actual tears. I always tell people, you know, a real leader's cry. If you don't cry as a leader, you have to lay off a thousand people and you're not crying. What kind of leader are you? You got to be able to feel some pain. So she was my teacher for many years. She still is today. She's the one person that I'll listen to. If you want me to do something, call her up. She'll get me to do it. And I'd love if you could just even briefly describe how the journey to Frito-Lay. And I understand Judy was instrumental in that. I know at the conference you talked about settling, but not in the context that usually people think about when they think about settling. If you could elaborate on that. I say that leadership comes in three levels. The first level is a pioneer. What is a pioneer? Many of our words, as you know, come from the French, the Latin, and the Greek. Many of the English words come from the French and the Latin. And the word pioneer comes from the French and the Latin. The first part of the word pioneer in the French means a foot soldier. The second part of pioneer comes from the Latin, means a person with big feet. So the word pioneer is actually a soldier with big feet. And we got to think about what do big feet do? They bring balance. Some of the places that pioneers go, it's dangerous. So big feet help you with balance. And the other thing a pioneer needs to have is the mentality of a soldier. And what do pioneers do? This is what people don't understand. Pioneers do not have maps. Pioneers go out and map out new territories. And they come back for what? For settlers. So people think when you're a pioneer that you have the map. No, no, no. While you're going, you're mapping it out. That's why when somebody said, if you want to know if you're a leader, just turn around and see how many people are following you. That's not true. Many times leaders go by themselves because they're so crazy. Me as a leader, I'd be lying if I told you I always knew where I was going. I'm a pioneer. I'm just going to map out this church. Where are you going? I don't know, but I got big feet. I'll help carry us. So once a pioneer maps out his destination, what does he do? He returns for settlers. As you said, that word always gets a bad rap. They say, well, you know what, Richard, you've settled in your ways. Well, I said, well, guess what? What do settlers do? 
They build infrastructure. They build companies. We know who founded Ford Car Company, but it was the settlers who built it. It was the settlers who built the infrastructure. That's why I tell young people, don't be quitting every six months. Stay somewhere and settle and build something because you learn how to build. And then when you're ready to build your thing, guess what? Other people will help you and you'll know what a settler is. I've had quite a few different companies. I didn't need the pioneer. I'm already a pioneer. I needed the settlers, those who had the infrastructure, those who had the skills on how to build something. You guys build the town. And I think that's exactly what you've done with your conference because I've spoken all over the world, some high level. I think I told you, you know, I certainly told your workers, man, that this is just from the start, the handoff began. I'm the type of person that it looks like I'm not doing anything, but I'm recording. I'm looking, I'm looking at that, I'm looking at that. Oh, look at that sound, look at this, this, the music. Where'd they get that DJ? This guy knows his stuff. Then I look at the people. It doesn't matter how exciting you are. What matters is how exciting are your clients, are your customers? And I saw like, wow, check this out. I was so impressed. But I know you founded it, but your setters outbuild it. And then I say, I get to the last point is a purposeful leader. And I'm not a pioneer anymore. I'm not a settler. I'm a purposeful leader. And what is that? You help other leaders find their purpose. I've recruited and I coach some of the top CEOs in the world, some of the biggest names that would blow you away. And I never mentioned their names because you have to understand when you're a coach or a mentor, it's not cool for you to share. It's kind of almost boasting. If I come up and say, well, I mentor Mike, that's personal. You don't do that kind of stuff. And then everybody wants to be a mentor nowadays. But they don't even know what a mentor is. And you gave me the freedom to share a story. I will share a story about what I think mentorship is. I'm a student of the etymology of words. I will trace a word for months. I'm not talking about a Google search. I'm talking about I'll read books on just one word. I'll pull up research papers. I'll pay extra dollars to get somebody's research paper and read it. Because everybody was becoming a mentor. I'll mentor him. I mentor her. And who's your mentor? I was like, oh. The mentors that I had didn't even know they were my mentors because I would study them. Some of them were dead, studying their papers. Yeah, I saw this story, and here's how the story goes. There was this general who had a son, a Greek general who had a son, and he was being sent to the front, the general. And the general knew when you're being sent to the front, man, you're not coming back. It was a suicide mission. So he went to his friend, and he told his friend, hey, the king sent me to the front. You know I'm not coming back. He goes, will you take care of my son? And the friend told the general, yes. And he said this, I will raise him as my own son. Of course, the general didn't come back. And the friend's name, you know what his name was? His name was Mentor. So Mentor isn't about coaching. Mentor is about raising someone as your own child. That's where that story comes from. His mentor said, I'll take care of him as I would my own son. So be careful when you say you mentor someone because are you raising them as you would your own child? For me, the people that I've mentored, this is my goal. I want to get to the point where you do greater things than I ever did. And I've taken some young leaders with me in certain places and I've said, look, one of these days we're going to walk into this room and everybody's going to bypass me and they're going to go straight to you. And when they do that, then I know that I've mentored you. 
And I don't think anybody can do that. It's just professors and universities. No matter how smart you are, no matter what you accomplish, you'll always think about that professor who taught you. Because they're true mentors. They're trying to develop you as they would their own children. On that note, this fundamental concept that you talk about, which is act like an owner 101. If you can elaborate on what that is and the importance of it. The first time I heard that was from Roger Enrico. He was the CEO of Pepsi. And this is what really wild is. He was running Pepsi and he was 37 years old. He's the guy that hired Michael Jackson. He's the guy that created the Cola Awards. Before he took over, Pepsi was never mentioned. It was always Coke. And then he took over and started the Cola Wars and did all this stuff. Well, they asked him to come over to Frito-Lay and do the same thing because Frito-Lay was struggling. So he came over and he sent out this video because, again, that was a communication. There was no email. There was no, it was a video or a fax. In that video, he said, I want everybody to act like an owner. I'm giving you the opportunity to think like a CEO. And everybody, it was about a thousand people. It never been done before because in production, you never shut anything down. And I shut the plant down. So we thought we were going to get laid off or fired. And here we hear this thing. So I was on the maintenance crew, mopping, cleaning, industrial cleaning. And my whole team said, oh, that's just corporate stuff. He's not talking to us. Certainly not talking to you, Richard. I've done something I've done my entire life since I was a child. As I broke ranks. And what I like to teach young people in universities, you have to understand when it comes to opportunity, opportunity is never given to you. Opportunity is created. Opportunity is something that you see, that you experience. If you look at the word again, the etymology of the word opportunity, it's a couple thousand years old. It's a term that sailors, captains used to use. And the tongue that they had, the word was opportune, not opportunity, opportune. So when a captain would be getting ready to launch his ship or bring it back to port, coming home, he would yell that word. And every crewman would look up at the sky and they would see the wind they would look at the waves. So everybody went into kind of like an action mode. Is this the opportunity to launch out? Is this the right time to land? You've heard this before. You have to know the landscape. Forget that quote. Today you have to know the seascape because we know that everything is up and down. Is this an opportunity to launch? Is this an opportunity to go home? So I teach people, understand that word opportunity. If you're waiting for it, you're going to die. It's not coming. You create it. Anywhere you want, there's an opportunity. I saw, I said, are you guys crazy? Here's the CEO telling the janitors that we could act like owners. When are you ever going to get that opportunity again? And I think sometimes you got to be over the top in your own personal life. I saw it like, okay, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm looking for opportunities. Everywhere since I was a child, I was selling burritos, I was selling whatever. I knew something, and there it is. So that really changed my life because I started to act like an owner. And this is kind of funny. That's why I love my wife so much because we had a little house, real, real small. And I'd go home after work, and I would put on a tie, and I would get a pencil and paper, and I would sit in my garage on a desk I got out of the trash or something. And I would act like I was an executive. And my wife would come in, and she would just like, yeah, someday. She didn't laugh, like, what are you doing, you idiot? I wasn't pretending. I was what I call being a visionary. What's a visionary? People that can see things that aren't there. Again, I know we're off subject, but we got to teach people 
that when it comes to being a visionary, what is that? Is that you get the opportunity to look into the future and see your life. If you don't like it, guess what? Change it. And that's what I was doing. I didn't like being poor. I didn't love being different from that side of the tracks. I'm always making a fool of myself. I don't know how to be like everybody else. So I just started putting a tie on and acting like an owner. Like, okay, if I run this cup, and guess what? Before I created Flamin' Hot Cheetos, I started to save the company millions of dollars because I would walk out on the floor and I'd look at the waste and I'd look at certain things and I said, if we did this, and then I'd go home and I'd tell Judy, here's what I did, Judy, and she would write it on a piece of paper because I could hardly read or write. Now, remember, I said I could hardly read or write, but I didn't stay there. I think I'm a pretty good writer now. And she would write it for me and I'd give it to the boss. And the boss would look at it, he'd be like, oh man, he just got his promotion. He'd go send it to the plant manager, the plant manager would call headquarters, next thing you know, there's a whole team. Like, wow, this is a great idea. And everybody got promoted. We saved $50 million the first year on my idea. And everybody got promoted. And I got a plaque and movie tickets. For me, that was the greatest thing. Now, of course, it wasn't much. But where I come from, it's the start. People say I was taken advantage of. And I once heard a great man say that he was asked the same thing. They'd taken advantage of you. And he said, well, you know what? I give away my best advantage. No one can take it. And I thought about it. Now, it won't make sense to a lot of people. I needed to do that to get where I wanted to get. I was letting everybody think, yeah, look, here's a dummy. He saved $50 million. We gave him a plaque and a movie tickets. But it was my way of getting in. It was my way of getting in. You have to take a couple of shots, man. If you're not willing to take any shots, get out of the ring. I was setting up my left hook, man. I got a pretty good left hook. I'm an old man, but I was telling my three boys, look, you guys ever come at me, I've got two good minutes. So for two minutes, it's going to hurt. So that was my two minutes. But people started to pay attention to me. This guy knows what he's talking about. When I was a janitor and the Frito-Lay system, you have operators who run the Dorito lines, the Cheeto lines, potato chip lines. Well, there's only one per shift. So if, if the guy on the following shift doesn't show up, guess what? You have to stay over four hours and the guy on the previous shift has to come in four hours early. So one day, the operator on the graveyard shift didn't come in. So I told the boss, I said, hey, let me run the machine. On my own, I'd been asking the operators, hey, let me run it, and you guys could go have a cigarette break. Like, yeah, they were all, of course, man. They showed me how. The, and I convinced them. I said, let me run it, please. So sure enough, I ran it for eight hours. It was a mess, but I did it. Running our Dorito line is as skilled as running uh, 747 jet. It's that difficult. It's that technical. It's not like, let's smash some corn up and make some tortillas. Frito-Lay, the technology is incredible. So I did it. And the guy was out for the whole week. So I convinced the manager, well, let me just run it for the whole week. And guess what? He's going to save $2 an hour because I'm still getting janitor wages. So they loved it. Well, at the end of that Friday, at the end of the week, I had set a new record for the most pounds because we measure everything in pounds. I had broken a record and set the record for the most pounds of Doritos in a ship. So again, I got celebrated. I got movie tickets and a plaque. I ended up helping rewrite the training manuals as a maintenance worker. Again, that stuff's incredible. And people say, why did you do that? But it goes back to, I think at the very beginning, I always said that it was never about Frito-Lay. It was always about my last name. I had a legacy to build for my children and my grandchildren. 
And again, if taking a couple of shots, I was going to do that. Take your best shot, but I'm not going to stop my legacy because of money. Money's going to come. I never set out to make money. Of course, we have all the money that we could ever want today, but that was never the strategy. The strategy was to be happy. The strategy was to build the legacy that my children and grandchildren could follow. I wanted people to say Montañez with respect. Uh, it started with moments like that. And again, we couldn't tell that in the movie because it would take forever. But that's how I started to get known by my name, by doing those things that other people couldn't do. And that's what I say leaders do. What do leaders do? They go places that others can't and others won't. So you got to be willing to get under the ring. And Richard, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the Flamin' Hot Cheetos because since that came to be, it obviously has expanded to a full product line. It's rejuvenated the brand. It's garnered billions now in revenue. But I'm just curious, from your experience, how did the idea for the Flamin' Hot Cheetos come to be? And then when did you know that you were really onto something? Again, after kind of the uh, acting like an owner, right? You know, I started writing ideas down. What do I want to do? Judy said, well, if you're going to act like a CEO, you need to understand the, the business. And again, this is two kids from the hood just dreaming out loud. We couldn't laugh at each other. And she would say, well, if you're going to act like an owner, Richard, you have to understand what is the company about. You're going to have to know everything. And I'd be like, what? She was just everything. And I said, you're right, I do, huh? So even today I teach, as a leader, you have to understand, you got to have technical competence of whatever it is that you're selling. Technical competence. Understand, that's why today I'm the godfather of Hispanic branding. Because I'm the smartest? No, because I was first. So when that video came out, I said, okay. I started putting on my Goodwill suit, walking around the house, dreaming about things. That, how would I act if I was a vice president? How would I, if I was in marketing, what would I do? If I was in sales, what would I do? Again, you know, we're dreamers, right? You're a dreamer. Set your dreams loose. And the best place to do that is the safety of your home with the people that love you. My kids were young boys, but I was showing them, dad, what are you doing in that suit? I said, one of these days, I'm going to be wearing this every day. You can too. So I figured, well, I need to know how to sell. I was a salesman because I'd been selling my whole life. But I needed to know technically how to sell. So I went to the sales office. It was right next door to the operating office. And I found a salesman and I told him, hey, can I go with you on my day off? I'll do all the work. I just want you to teach me the business. And he was pretty happy, you know, free labor. And he said, yeah, on your day off, meet me at 5 o'clock in the morning. Because, you know, the sales guys start at 5 in the morning. So I got there, he taught me how to write an invoice, how to load the truck so we could maximize the space, you know, load as much as possible. Then he taught me how to run a route so that we could minimize our fuel and maximize our time. Then when we got to the store, he taught me how to merchandise. See, when you see products on the shelves, there's four shelves, five shelves. There's a system that we use. We want you to bend down for this product we want you to reach up for this product, eye level with this product. It's not just, let's just fill up the rack. It's a schematic. So there we were, loading it up, and it was Lage Ruffles Fritos. Second store, Lage Ruffles Fritos. Third store, Lage Ruffles Fritos. Maybe sour cream, maybe barbecue. Lage Ruffles Fritos. Everywhere was Lage Ruffles Fritos. And then I looked. And I saw something, and I've said this many times, you know, it's part of my teaching, is that all you need is one revelation to create a revolution. What is a revelation? A revelation is something that was always there, but it's been unveiled or revealed to you. It was always there. 
And I saw this revelation that was going to create a revolution. What did I see? I saw the spice rack. I saw people buy the little jars of spices, the Lowry salt and the chilies. And I looked at us, Lay's Ruffles Friedels, Lay's Ruffles Friedels, spices. And I looked at him, my trainer, he couldn't see it. You know why he couldn't see it? Because he was an expert. I tell people today, don't be such an expert that you can't see things anymore. I've had thousands of people that reported to me, and I said, don't bring me ideas everyone can see. Bring me ideas no one can see. You know, ideas are hidden in the 4D. We live in 3D. And sometimes we got to transform ourselves into where the ideas are at. The greatest minds of all time were the Greek philosophers. And they were asked this question. We have democracy from the Greeks. We have capitalism comes from the Greeks. They started a lot of stuff. So they were asked this question, what is an idea? And it blows me away that they said this. An idea is that thing in the mind of God. What? What is an idea? It's that thing in the mind of God. What were they saying? They were saying that ideas are hidden in a different dimension. So if you wanted those things, you had to reach into that. So he couldn't see it because he was an expert. So I thought, okay, I need to create a spicy product. So I went and told Judy, and Judy's a wonderful cook. I said, we're going to put your chili on a chip. She's ready to roll with me. Sounds great. Which one? I didn't know. I thought, Lay's, Doritos, I don't know. Then one day, I used to cash my check at the neighborhood grocery store called Ontario Ranch Market. I'd go there because he would cash my check and knew me by name. I didn't have a bank account. Why didn't you have a bank account? I didn't have no money. What do I need a bank account for? I'd cash my check at the liquor store. I'd cash my check there, buy groceries. And on the weekend, there was this young man, his two daughters and his wife. And this young man was always dressed really clean and nice, and so was his family. And he was selling corn on the cob. He was selling this before street vending was popular. Today, you know, it's popular to have a mobile truck. You know, back in those days, it was seen again, you're from the other side of the track. Don't come on this side with that garbage. And I would see him, and he would greet me with such a kind handshake. And he still inspired because no one told him he was a street vendor. He acted like he was running a five star restaurant. And I believe that, you know, he's probably running a five-star restaurant today. So I bought the corn. He put everything on it, butter, chili, cheese, lime. It was just delicious for a buck. I bought two, one for him and one for me. And I took a bite. Then I took a second bite. And when I took the second bite, I just stared at it. And I said this, a revelation, something that was always there, but it's been revealed. I said, that looks like a Cheeto. And I said something that I believe every great leader has to say. I said two words, what if? What if I put chili on a Cheeto? What if I start my own business? What if I go to a university? What if I apply? What if? As the beginning of greatness. I said, what if I put chili? So I ran it and I told Judy, Judy, I got it. We're going to do this. We're going to put. And she said, great. So she said, go get some Cheetos with no cheese on it. Cheetos already come with the cheese. So I, I went to the plant, got some, brought it home, and sure enough, it took us a couple of times, and we got it right. She took some her work. I took some to my work. Everybody loved it. Came back, and she said, you got to call the CEO. Now, you have to keep in mind or imagine that this is during when corporate America was a command and control. What is command and control? Exactly that. I didn't hire you to think. I hired you to do what I tell you to do. 
as I speak across the country and some of the biggest companies in the world, I'm still amazed when I still see some companies still trying to survive under the command and control. So you didn't do those kind of things. You didn't call the CEO. So I went and I found the phone book because that was a communication. There was no email. It was a corporate directory. Now, also, you have to realize that we're in every country that the government will allow us. There's a Frito-Lay production in Russia, a Pepsi production in China. So the thousand presidents. So the presidents would call the CEO, not the janitor. So remember I said earlier, I'm not trying to influence everyone, only the right ones. Because when it's the right ones, it works both ways. So I picked up the phone and I called. And Patty, his assistant, still my friend today, she's been retired for a few years. I said, hi, this is Richard Montañez. I'd like to talk to the CEO. And she said, well, what area do you run? I don't recognize the name. Because remember, she knew all the presidents. She knew the seniors. And no one else would call. A vice president wouldn't even call the CEO. So I said, no, I work in California. Said, oh, okay, you're the president of California? I said, no, I work in Southern California. Okay. You're the vice president of SoCal. I said, no, I work in the plant. She said, oh, vice president of operations? I said, no, I work inside and side. And she said, are you the director? No. Plant manager? No. She said, what are you? I said, I'm, I used the fancy word. I said, I'm the maintenance technician. And I said, wait, wait, don't hang up, though. I saw his video, and he said, act like an owner, and I made this product, and I began to tell her all this stuff. And then I said, by the way, I was employee of the month, two months in a row. Now, I don't know what she told him, but I believe that she told him, Mr. Enrico, you have a janitor on the other line that's created his own product. He saw your video. You need to take this call. You need to talk to him. He's doing exactly what you need. Matter of fact, Roger, you need him more than he needs you. Because when Roger got on the phone, he was so excited. And he said, I'll be there in two weeks. Now, remember, I'm not trying to influence everyone, only the right ones. Patty was the right one. She did the influencing for me. So he came down, protocol went into action before he came. CEO's office called the president's office, called the senior vice president, called the area vice president. 100 vice presidents got the phone call. The conversation was all the same. Who let the janitor call the CEO? I had broken protocol during a command and control generation. You don't do that kind of stuff. So by the time the plant manager heard, he came looking for me and just cussed me out and said, you're going to do the presentation. And the thought was, let's let him do the presentation so they can see how ridiculous he is and they'll fire him. We need to put a stop to this. That was the strategy, you know, the conspiracy, so to speak. So I went home. And that's why we say that I will follow the leadership of a woman any day. I believe with all my heart, they're some of the best leaders ever. I told my wife, I was so scared, I'm going to get fired. And she said, why? And I, said, I blamed her. I said, because you told me to call the CEO. Now I'm in trouble. But typical leadership of a woman. She said, calm down. We're going to go to the library and check out a book. Because remember, there's no Google. So we went to the library, checked out a book on how to develop a marketing strategy. Went and bought my first tie for $3.50. Put my presentation on transparencies. Designed 100 bags. I bought the, the clear bags industrial clear bags, and I drew graphics on each one of the bags. And one of the things that I'm proud about is when I first started doing the clear bags, everybody said how stupid that was, how ridiculous that is. Like, come on, man, it looks so ghetto. But there's not one retail store in the country that you cannot walk into and find several different packages of clear bags. 
That's why I say I'm the godfather. I started it first. I did it before it was a trend. And I opened the doors for so many people. That's why I tell people, figure out something, put it in a bag, put a label on it, and go sell it. And guess what? You cannot go to a mall without somebody doing that. Well, here's where it came from. So that day came. They all came into town. And this was history because in those days, command and control, CEOs and executives didn't go to plants. They went to high-level marketing meetings. They went to Wall Street. They went to go visit the other CEOs. They never came to see a plant. Somebody baked something, they didn't go to the plants. That was almost kind of beneath them. But this day was everyone. The CFO was there, chief marketing officer, chief legal officer, you name it, they were all there. And I'm walking out the door and Judy does something to me. And she does three things. She inspired me, she encouraged me, she reminded me. And I've taken that from her. That's always my intention, no matter where I go. I want to inspire you. Again, the word comes from the Greeks and it simply means to breathe life into someone. To encourage someone means to grab courage and put it in their deepest being that they stand up and they're never the same again. To remind somebody, remind them of what? Remind them of their value to humanity, to their family, to their company. So I'm walking out the door, Judy says, Richard, I don't know anybody smarter than you. She inspired me. And then she said, Richard, I don't know anybody who has more courage than you. She encouraged me. Then I walked out. Last thing she said, she reminded me, she said, don't forget what your grandpa and your dad told you. Don't forget who you are. And I always say, when you do those three things to the people that work for you, the people that you care about, there isn't anything that they can't accomplish. So I got to the plant, inspired and cursed, reminded, and sure enough, I began to do my presentation. And you have to understand, I'm doing a presentation. I've never even done homework. I don't know what that looks like. You know, I'm just trying to go off memory of, you know, watching other people, movies and things like that. But I was doing it. I had their attention. And I always warned everyone. And I said this, I don't care what room you're in. There's always someone in the room that's going to try to steal your destiny. Your job is to be ready not to allow it to happen. So sure enough, the presentation was going great. And one of the executives in marketing raised up his hand. And I literally turned my back to him because I knew what that meant. And he called out my name, Richard, I have a question. I thought, oh, man, we don't have time for questions. I said that. I said, sir, we don't have time for questions. And he said, it's a simple one. I said, okay. And he said, this is all great, but how much market share are we talking about? I had fear. I said, market share? Inside, I'm thinking, we haven't read that chapter yet. So I'm like, oh, my God, what am I doing up here? I'm never going to be like these guys. I was ready to give it up right there. I quit, man. I'm like, I'm making a fool of myself. All my life, I want to be like these people, but I'll never fit in. I've always teach that sometimes in order to find your future, you got to revisit your past. Good or bad, there's nothing wrong with your past. Your past is a pillar to help sustain your future. I don't care how bad it was. I don't care how good it is. It is your path. It is a pillar. So I remember doing desegregation. My first day at the school, I'm crying. I don't want to go. My mom said, you got to go, and went to the corner, and they sent the yellow bus. The yellow bus didn't stop. And I thought, wow, they didn't stop. The school bus didn't stop. Well, here comes another bus. It was green. It was ugly. It was backfired. And that's the bus they sent to pick us up, eight Mexican kids. And I remember telling my uncle, I don't want to get on that 
ugly green bus. I want to ride the yellow bus like the other kids. He said, this is what they said. It wasn't until I was an adult years later that I finally realized it was society of the day and time saying, you know what, let's grab this group of kids, put them on this ugly green bus, parade them across town so everybody could see that, guess what, they're not good enough to ride the yellow bus. They're not like the other kids. They're never going to fit in. Well, as a child, you take those things on. We get to school, and I'm struggling with what the teacher said. And finally, there was the sound. And I've always said, every kid knows the sound. It's the sound of the recess bell. I didn't need an interpreter. I knew what that meant. Lunchtime. So the eight of us stayed together. And I remember I pulled out my lunch, and we went to the lunch field and sat down. I pulled out my lunch, ready to take a bite. Everybody stared at me. And I quickly got my lunch and I put it back in the bag. You know why everyone was staring at me? Because it was a burrito. Now know this, this was 1960-something. The world hadn't seen a burrito yet. Contrary to popular belief, Taco Bell then introduced a burrito to the world, me and my mom did. But the truth was, I was embarrassed. Embarrassed because my English sucked. I was embarrassed because I was in that green bus and I was embarrassed because everybody was staring at my lunch. So I went home and I told my mom, I said, Mom, make me a bologna sandwich and a cupcake like the other kids because I want to be like them. And my mom, I always said it was a marketing genius, the leadership of a woman. She said, no, son, this is who you are. So the next day she made me two burritos. She said, here's one for you and here's one to share with a friend. So Wednesday was my burrito nightmare. Thursday, I shared a burrito with a friend. Friday, I was selling burritos for 25 cents a piece. That was actually the first revelation I ever received that created a revolution. What was that revelation? That as much as I wanted to fit in and be like everyone else, I finally realized I was never created to fit in. I was created to stand out. And that's what we have to teach our young people. As they go through life trying to fit in, we have to remind them, you were never created to fit in. Give it up. You will never be like them because you were created to stand out. That could be offensive to many people. But that's their problem. To people that are important to me, I'm going to tell them, you will never be like that because you weren't created. You were created to be you. Be you. It's the best thing that we need. We need you. We don't need another one of them. That was my first revelation. So back to the question, how much market share? I'm not supposed to be like those guys. Let's just go with what I know. It's not about how smart you are, right? It's about how are you smart? So I said market share. And I remember the we call them gondolas, the racks, how wide they are, how long they are. Could be four feet, could be eight feet, could be 24 feet, 52 feet, depending on the size of groceries. With the most ridiculous smile, I stretched out my arms and I said, this much market share. You could hear the giggles. And you could hear the market executives say, did he just say this much market share? That was pretty stupid statement I said. It was ridiculous, but you have to... Always understand, many times greatness will come in a ridiculous form. I think every time greatness comes in a ridiculous form. If you're not willing to look ridiculous, you will never achieve your greatness. So the person that's sitting to the left of me is the CEO, Roger Enrico. He stood up and he addressed his team. He said, ladies and gentlemen, do you realize that Richard just showed us how to go after that much market share? He was a visionary. And he took that ridiculous statement and set me up for greatness because he could see the things that other people couldn't see.
Now, when you're in marketing or in sales, people will always teach that you have to have the vision to see things, but you also have to have the vision to see the ideas of other people, to look into what I'm trying to communicate to you. Here's my idea. That's probably the hardest thing to sell is your idea because people just don't get it because they haven't trained themselves how to see the things that other people can't see. One of the first things, and I know that lawyers, you have to really understand this, is words. And I teach this too. I always ask this question, well, where do words come from? And people say, well, from the dictionary, from this and that, from Adam and Eve. Well, the truth is words come from culture. Every culture has words. They come from culture. There are no right or wrong words. There are bad words, but it's culture. If you understand the culture and you're communicating, you're going to be successful. And I consider myself to be a trial lawyer. And I'm just kidding with you. you know? And why do you say that? Says, because I've been in trial my whole life. Born into poverty, I was convicted. But when I found prosperity, I was acquitted. And once I understood the value of words and how to communicate, it set me into being successful. Now, again, these are things that I never learned in a university. I was learning this stuff on my own. I was learning by watching other leaders. Like I said, some of my mentors didn't even know they were my mentors. And I would see, how did they do that? How do I get into his mind? How do I get into her mind so that I can communicate that way? And I said, okay, well, first let me see his precepts. What is a precept? As a precept is a thought. Now, when that thought is accepted by the mind, it becomes a concept. It becomes a concept. It leads to an idea. So what is a precept? And I know that your team knows your precepts. They know what you want before you even ask. And that's what I always did about my CEOs. I was successful because I knew their precepts. I knew what they wanted. It wasn't about what I wanted. It was about what they wanted done. Their strategy and their vision. And leaders appreciate, I appreciate when people understand me and they already know what I want before I even ask. It sets everybody to be free to just go out and just lead as you want. So people need to understand precept, concept, an idea, where the words come from. They come from culture. So Richard, with all this, I want to be mindful of your time. And I encourage anyone who has not already read your book or has watched the movie, Flamin' Hot, I encourage them to go out and see it because it's phenomenal. I think I saw it on Disney Plus. I think it's on Hulu as well. Just two quick questions for you. So one is, what does it feel like to have a movie just produced about you and your story? And then we'll close it out. It's incredible. Again, when the book made it to Hollywood, it wasn't something me and my wife wanted to do. We had to talk about it a lot. We had a lot of beatings because we enjoy our privacy. We had money. And let me close with this too, is for all the young listeners. What people say about money is not true. People say money doesn't bring happiness. And I always say, how do you know you don't have any? Or how about letting us find out on our own? I tell young people, go find out whether money makes you happy. But money is powerful. And because Judy and I had money, we didn't take the first offer. We said, no, we want this movie to be inspirational. We want this. Being technically competent, nothing about Hollywood, but competent about contracts. I was able to work out a contract where I stayed involved with the whole thing. Because again, it wasn't about money. So money does give you a power. Sometimes people have sold their rights and then they come back complaining later because, and I feel bad because they took the money. I won't tell you their name. Some of these CEOs were shocked. When Judy said, no, we're going to go somewhere else. It wasn't about the money. 
It was about the rights and controlling stuff like that. So it was nerve wracking because again, there's just too much in our story. We have a foundation where we feed hundreds of thousands of people across the country. We buy 50,000 pairs of new shoes and we give them to kids, can't afford them. We sent thousands of kids to school on scholarship. We don't talk about it, we don't do anything. So we were worried about not our reputation, but our legacy. So it was nerve wracking, but because of my contract, I was able to say, no, take that out, no, rewrite that, no, rewrite that. We were really, really happy. And the feedback that we have gotten has been incredible. It helped change lives and schools are showing it. It's just very inspirational. And I love the way that Eva Longoria directed it. It was just amazing. She's an amazing woman. She just nailed it. So it all came together for me. I had a great producer, great actors. Everything just unfolded the way we wanted. I didn't want no big names, so to speak. I wanted to open the door for new people. And sure enough, these stars are now well-known. And the great thing about it that Bob Iger saw the movie, and when he saw it, he released it on both platforms, Disney and Hulu. So you know, it went into, I don't know, 400 million homes. So that made history itself. I think that's what I love about our life, that no matter what we do, it's always historic. It's always historic. You'd be associated with us, that's going to be a historic moment. And as we come to a close, Richard, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? It's life. Being able to change the game, the score, the outcome, and getting into the game is just incredible. And I want to encourage everyone out there that there's a spot for you especially in your organization, especially the way you put on a show. We're looking for the next superstar. We're looking for the next touchdown, the next field goal, the next interception, the next fumble recovery, the next whatever, man. Get into the game. I want to give a huge thank you to Richard Montañez for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Richard Montañez, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com. Oh, 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 o